Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the chance to gather in worship, to be drawn in by your spirit, to hear your word proclaimed, to respond, and to be sent forth uh, to bear witness to your kingdom. May we hear your words, and may we be transformed just a bit more into your image. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we don't have cable in our home, but we do have Netflix. Uh, we are currently in the middle of season three of The Crown. Anybody watch The Crown? Okay, if you haven't, drink three less macchiatos this month and get Netflix and watch The Crown. It's the story of the British monarchy, especially Queen Elizabeth. It's a fascinating story that starts when her uncle abdicates the throne in order to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Uh, her father ascends to the throne and immediately uh, it becomes clear that she will be the next monarch after her father. He dies younger than expected and she ascends to the throne and Really, most of the story is, what kind of monarch is Elizabeth? How does she represent the crown? Uh, for an, in some ways, she is supposed to transcend the crown and, and be the crown, but not be little Lilibet, right? Uh, in season three, we learn a little bit of her backstory that as a kid, she had zero desire to ever be the monarch. We learned that her sister Margaret was actually much more wired for this. She's the outgoing type who doesn't mind bossing people around, and she would love to be the, the queen. Uh, they actually go and say, like, can we just skip me and let Margaret be the queen? Uh, the crown does not do that. So we see in different episodes how she responds in ways differently uh, than maybe her father or the queens and kings before would have. Uh, in, in a time of disaster in Wales, she goes out despite the fact that the crown does not show up to these kind of moments. Uh, I love this show because I know where we're heading. Charles is growing up in here, and I know we're heading to Prince William and Prince Harry. These are my friends. We grew up together. Uh, every ladies' magazine my mother ever got when we were a child had a picture of Diana, America's princess, or the people's princess, and her kids. Uh, we, we are already beginning to get a sense of uh, how will the, the monarchy, how will the crown look when Elizabeth dies? Charles will be different, surely, than Elizabeth as, as uh, king, right? Uh, William seems to be following more in Charles's footsteps. Harry has all his own drama that has just emerged. Uh, if you follow the news, uh, didn't know you could step back from being a senior royal. Um, we're fascinated by what these uh, people are going to be like compared to the people before them, right? Uh, it's uh, different than what we're used to. We elect our leaders. We don't get to become a leader uh, because of bloodline. But we're not just fascinated by kings and queens, right? We're fascinated by dictators who pass on their, their leadership through their family. When Kim Jong-il died, we wondered, what will Kim Jong-un be like? Will he uh, be as terrible? Will he be open to relationship with other people? Uh, will he set North Korea free from some of his burdens, or will he be worse? And we watch with interest, and the news gives us all kinds of feeding of this, right? In Saudi Arabia, we uh, probably pay less attention to it, but we, we hear about the crown princes, and uh, we had a big change in the crown prince of Saudi Arabia a while back, kind of forecasting what kind of king he'll be. 
Uh, they deposed the previous crown prince and uh, made Mohammed bin Salman the new crown prince. And he's uh, done things that the, the monarchy never does in Saudi Arabia. They've uh, given women more rights. They're allowed to drive cars. They can go out and do things maybe without their husbands. He's also murdered Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, uh, we're fascinated by how leadership has passed in this kind of way, right? I, I'm, I think it's some of the most intriguing news of how, uh, how a family passes on their legacy and what kids do with it. Uh, our scripture is full of stories of royal legacies. Uh, it starts with Saul and then uh, quickly kind of have the story flipped over to David. And then we wonder, what will Solomon be like? And well, he's worse. And then after Solomon, we wonder, what will this be like? And then Rehoboam is like worse than Solomon. And things just spiral out of control from there. In the north, we never actually have another good king who uh, like does better than his father. They're all just terrible, right? In the southern kingdom, we have a few who we uh, look at and go, oh, they're good kings. Like David, their father. People after God's own heart. But most of them are terrible as well. And then the exile the kingdom stops. It's kind of reset. A new vision for the monarchy of Israel. Uh, if you read the prophets, you can get various pictures of what this king might look like, this future king, this Messiah of Israel's hope. If you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, and Zephaniah, it's all of them, they're out of order, um, if you read them, there are a lot of different pictures of what they hope for the monarchy. They'll relate them in terms of like their father David. Be a, a warrior, a king who rules by military might. They'll talk about uh, someone who suffers. They'll talk about this and that. And, and you get all these various pictures. And by the time Christ comes on the scene, you have Messiah after Messiah claiming to be the one who's going to fulfill these promises. We get to look back with the whole story in mind and see uh, what they're trying to tell us through some of these early Christ stories. I love Matthew's gospel. It uh, starts with the angel's vision to Joseph. And uh, you'll have uh, the son, you'll name him Jesus, which means God saves, and you'll call him Emmanuel, uh, for God is with us. We have the flight to Egypt, Herod's slaughter. They come back, and immediately Jesus is a 30-year-old man. We, we don't get any other young children's stories. He's a 30-year-old man who uh, gets uh, welcomed in by his cousin, John the Baptist. Uh, prepare a way for the Lord. Uh, come, someone's coming after me who's greater than me. He's going to baptize with fire. I baptize with water. What, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? He's got his axe at the root of Israel and his winnowing fork in his hand. Judgment is here. And the text says, then Jesus came to the river to be baptized. I, a little holy imagination. I've been trying to picture this scene. What does this look like if you're this crowd who's, who's just been baptized, who's heard John declaring this message and Jesus rolls up? Are you still wet and dripping on the side of the river? Are the, the nasty bugs and flies still swarming around? Is it so hot and humid that you're really struggling to breathe? And then this one that John defers to comes. I think it's a fascinating exploration and holy imagination. 
So John has done his best. He's grown up with Jesus. They're cousins, right? They, there's at least some kind of family reunion. We know Mary and Elizabeth are tight. They get together occasionally. He knows Jesus, and what he tells us is that Jesus is going to come with an axe and with a fork of judgment. And immediately, Jesus comes to be baptized. Elizabeth read us our short little four-verse passage today, and we could preach a six-month series on this passage, right? The Monahans say No. We are not, don't worry. We're spending another 15 minutes on it, maybe. Uh, you could take it in so many directions. Why do they have this conflict over who should baptize whom? That could be its own sermon, right? What is the relationship between the prophet and the Messiah? We could do a whole sermon on uh, what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness. I'll be glad I'm not preaching that sermon. Uh, we could do a whole sermon on uh, dove imagery in the ancient Near East. We could talk about what is peace, what is uh, heaven. We could talk about the idea of spirit descending. We could, we could wrestle, we could spend a whole series just on our theology of the spirit. <coughs> I've been struck by the one last line in this passage. In the CEB it reads, this is my son, whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. This is my son whom I love. Whatever your translation says, I find this part of the passage fascinating. Because on its surface level, we know the truth, right? This is language that's helping us understand a bit more of the Trinity. This is the son of the father, right? This is the divine son of God. How many of you know that it's also a midrashic combination of two Old Testament quotations? All right, good. In these two little phrases, it draws upon the great history of Israel's story. They're, they're more in, in tune with their story maybe than we are. If you just say a little phrase of Old Testament language, uh, even a modern Jew will hear the whole of that story. Uh, if you're a, a literature person like Georgia, maybe you hear... Uh, water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink, and you can think of the whole poem, right? Uh, if you were better than me in ninth grade English, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And you can remember the rest of it. I got a C because I did not memorize the other 30 lines. But they hear one line, and they hear the whole story. This is my son. To us, is a simple statement. To them would immediately evoke Psalm 2. Hear these words. Why do the nations rant? Why do peoples rave uselessly? The earth, earth's rulers take their stand. The leaders scheme together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Come, they say, well, we'll tear off the ropes and throw off their chains. So the, the psalm starts with these uh, earthly people trying to scheme against Yahweh and his rulers. But then we read this. The one who rules the heavens laughs. My Lord makes fun of them, but then God speaks to them angrily. Then he terrifies them with his fury. I hereby appoint my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Yahweh responds to these people who think that they're going to do what they want in terms of the kingdom. I hereby appoint my king on Zion. I will announce the Lord's decision. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. 
Just ask me and I will make the nations your possession. The far corners of the earth will be your property. You will smash them with an iron rod. You will shatter them like a pottery jar. So wise up, kings. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord reverently, trembling. Kiss his feet or else he will become angry and your way will be destroyed because his anger ignites in an instant. But all who take refuge in Yahweh are truly happy. He's my son. Evokes this whole psalm. This is traditionally a coronation psalm read at the coronation of the new king. The king who's supposed to serve not out of his might, but out of the power of Yahweh. Call upon my name and I will give you the nations as your possession. The far corners of the earth will be your property. This is my son. Christ is inaugurated at his baptism. He's crowned king at his baptism. In this very moment, it's a declaration that Yahweh's king has returned. But it doesn't stop there because it's not just my son. It's my son in whom I delight or in whom I find happiness, in whom I'm well pleased. Calls us back to Isaiah 42. But here's my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick. But he will surely bring justice. He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice in the land, the coastlands, await his teaching. God... Yahweh says, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who stretched them out, the one who spread the earth and its offspring, the one who gave breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, Yahweh, have called you for a good reason. I will grasp your hand and guard you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and to, to those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. I am Yahweh. That is my name, I don't hand out my glory to others or my praise to idols. The things I've announced in the past, look, they've already happened. But I'm declaring new things. This is my servant in whom I'm well pleased, in whom I delight, in whom I find happiness. This suffering servant of Isaiah becomes one of the chief identifiers of Christ in the Gospels. Matthew especially clearly understands Jesus to be this suffering servant. And God speaks it through this moment at baptism. This is my son, the king, who is also the suffering servant. And here's what his ministry, here's what his rule will look like. Here's what his kingdom will be known by. He's not going to cry out loud. He's not going to shout. He won't uh, make his voice heard in the public. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't even extinguish a faint candle but he will bring justice. I'm the Lord, and I've called him for a good reason, to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. By saying, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I delight. He is saying far more than that. 
This is my son in whom I delight. But he is the king of Israel's hope. He is the suffering servant. He comes with a kingdom that brings justice. He comes to proclaim release, recovery of sight. He comes for liberation and justice. It's a whole lot in one little sentence. He comes filling all of Israel's hope, even though they don't quite yet know it. Last week we read in John's prologue uh, that you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, his own people didn't receive him. But to those who welcomed him, he gave the right to be sons and daughters of the God Most High. Friends, we are sons and daughters of God as well. We are ones in whom God delights, and we are beloved by God. We're given the same mandate, the same mission that Christ is, and it's made clear in this passage what that mandate and mission is. It's to proclaim justice, to proclaim liberation, to announce freedom, to set people loose. It doesn't say that his ministry is to judge, though he is a judge. It doesn't say that he's come to topple empires, though he topples empires. His kingdom is a kingdom of justice. In uh, Ephesians, we're told, be therefore imitators of Christ as beloved children. What does that look like? It looks like us going forth and announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It looks like us taking the authority from our baptism and going out and telling people that God can set them free. We're told uh, in Matthew's gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Teaching them to obey all that I command you might look a whole lot like teaching them that God loves them, God delights in them, and God wants to set them free. We're, uh, uh, our Bible study has been working through Romans uh, this last semester, and uh, one of the chief commands early on is to be slaves of righteousness. That is a passage that uh, is scary. Being a slave to righteousness sounds uh, like a call to be perfect, to not ever mess anything up. We believe in perfection in the Methodist Church, but it's a whole different kind of perfection than we think of. It's being perfect in love. It's embodying the kingdom. It's being people who are set free from sin such that we can declare that God loves us, God loves you, and God wants to set you free. Friends, this passage has got one little saying from the divine about his son. This is my son, my beloved, in whom I delight. But it's a message that changes the entire course of history, and it should change our lives. If the church ended tomorrow, things should look different, friends. We should be noticed if we disappeared. Yes? We, we need to reclaim this truth that we are God's sons and daughters that we are beloved and that God delights in us. It's easy to see God as an angry judge up there, but God delights in you. I think there's people here and who need to hear that again today. God delights in you. What would it look like if we went forth taking this seriously? If we went forward and told our friends and family, God loves you. You are beloved. What if on those hard days we told ourselves that? There are days that I need to hear that God loves me and that I am beloved. 
I've heard your stories. There's days you need to hear that God loves you and that God finds you beloved. He delights in you. And we do that through the Spirit of God dwelling in us. The Spirit who comes forth from the Father and the Son. The Spirit who bears witness to this kingdom that Christ announced. This kingdom of liberation, of justice, of mercy. Pope Francis says that mercy is the name of the gospel. Our God is a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God who took on flesh in Christ that we might know that he loves us, his sons and daughters, and that he delights in you. Would you pray with me? At creation, you formed humanity in your image and said that it was very good. Despite our rebellion, you never let go of us. At every step, you responded, you adapted, and you never left or forsaked us. When the time was right, you took on flesh and dwelt with us. You taught us, you lived. You suffered and you died for us and you sent your spirit when the time was right, giving birth to your church. Lord, remind us that you love us and that you delight in us. Remind us that as we welcome you, we are sons and daughters of you. Fill us. Send us forth to a world that so desperately needs to see that you love them and that you delight in them. Lord, may we go forth in a way that uh, should the church change, the world would be different. Lord, may we be your very light right here in this part of town. Reveal to us the ways in which we need to be open to the movement of your spirit and reveal to us those who we need to go and bear witness to you. We love you. And we delight in you. Remind us that you love us and delight in us. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.